0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Xfinity. Everything is changing so fast. But now, with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply.
1: Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Brooke Shields looks back on her childhood career from her perspective as a 57-year-old woman and talks about how she was sexually objectified when she was a child and teen actress. Shields is the subject of the new Hulu documentary, Pretty Baby. Also, Samara Joy performed some songs for us. I'd
2: lie and say things I just swell
1: but to This year she became the second jazz performer in Grammy history to win been. Best New Artist. She also won for Best New Jazz Album. She grew up in a gospel family. Her grandparents sang in a choir. Her father toured with gospel star Andre Crouch. Samara Joy was the lead singer in her church's gospel choir in the Bronx. And Justin Chang reviews the film that won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize for Best American Dramatic Film. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend.
3: This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Carvana has made it easy to sell your car. Just enter your license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and they'll give you a real offer in seconds, and it's good for up to seven days. Visit Carvana.com to get an instant offer today.
4: At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kenergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.
1: This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. We're about to hear from a great young singer who's going to perform for us. My guest is Samara Joy. This year, she became the second jazz performer in Grammy history to win the award for Best New Artist. To top it off, she also won the Grammy for Best Jazz Vocal Album. The album is called Linger A While. She's 23 and didn't really immerse herself in jazz until she was in college. While she was studying music at the State University of New York's Purchase College, she won the Sarah Vaughan International Jazz Competition, which helped launch her career. She posted a video of her singing as a thank you to the people who funded her scholarship, and it went viral. That led her to start a GoFundMe page to pay for the production of her first album, which she recorded in 2020 while she was still in college. She comes from a family of gospel singers. Her grandparents co-founded a gospel choir in Philadelphia called the Savettes and traveled around Philly preaching in their Godmobile. Her father is a singer and bass player who toured with gospel star Andre Crouch. Samara Joy was a soloist in her church choir in the Bronx. Joining her today is Cameron Campbell at the piano, Michael Migliori Bass, and Evan Sherman Drums. They're joining us from the studio of WNYC in New York. Well, welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for coming. Samara, I really love your singing, and uh, it's so great to have you here. So I'd like to start with a song that you include on the new album. It's a song by Frank Lesser, who also wrote the score for Guys and Dolls, and Jimmy McHugh. The song is Can't Get Out of This Mood, and I'm wondering, like, why did you choose this song? What does it mean to you? How did you first hear it? It's not a song that many people do.
5: Yeah, I heard this uh, first from Sarah Vaughan and later on from Nina Simone. Um, And I realized that uh, at the time of choosing it, I was attracted to a lot of um, sadder uh, Torch songs. And so when I heard it, you know, I was like, this is something a little bit more upbeat and positive to add to the repertoire. And that's why I love to sing it.
1: Well, I'd love for you to sing it now. Here we go.
2: Can't get out of this mood Can't get over this feeling Can't get out of this mood Last night, your lips were too appealing The thrill it should have been all gone by today in the usual way but it's only arms I can't get out of this dream what a fool the dream of you wasn't part of my scheme to and so tell you that Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Love your love your voice. So you know when you accepted the Grammy for Best New Artist, you said that you were amazed at being here by just being yourself, by just being who you were born as. What did you mean by that? Because you seem really overwhelmed by the idea of being here by just being yourself.
5: I was very overwhelmed, and I wish I could go back and do it again, but. I guess what I meant really in my head what I was trying to say was, you know, a lot of times in the music industry or from the outside looking in, you see people change or they're kind of forced to change in order to fit in or forced to uh, blend in or assimilate alongside all of these um, creatives in order to get their shot. And so I felt like it was incredible for me to even be in that room and... Be a part of something so special, a part of that night, without having to necessarily change anything about who I am in order to fit in. It's like I fit in already by just being myself.
1: And uh, for both of your acceptance speeches, Graham, as you said, I'm from the Bronx. I can't believe I'm here. What was your neighborhood like in the Bronx? Well, for me, you know, it was it was half
5: and half chaotic and... <laughs> And peaceful, you know, if that makes sense. My my grandmother bought a house in the Bronx that we all lived in and still, you know, have and own to this day that was kind of like half in the suburbs and kind of half in, the I guess, the more dangerous, you know, side of town. And so I went to public school. I saw a lot, you know, growing up that. But my thankfully, you know, my dad, he would pick us up and drop us off from school every single day. And so. I don't know. It's just every time I've talked to anybody about the Bronx, they're like, oh, it's, you know, crazy over there. Like for me, I had an amazing childhood an amazing time in public school and going to school and stuff. So I don't look at that as like, even though I'm from the Bronx, I made it out. You know, it's like there's potential and there's talent and there's people with dreams everywhere, you know, no matter where you're from. And it's just like if you have somebody... Support a family or a teacher who believes in you or wants to support you or and people around you that want to help and lift you up you know it doesn 't matter where you come from or where you know they say that the reputation is bad and they say you know don't go there or that kind of thing so I guess that's what i meant i 'm proud of where i 'm from
1: what's a song you heard early on when you were first getting excited by jazz that made you want to sing it <laughs> mm. I can remember being uh, one of my, when I
5: was, like, asking my professors what, what records I should listen to, my vocal teacher, Alexis Cole, she told me to check out Sarah Vaughan Live at Mr. Kelly's, um, which is an amazing recording. And I listened to Stairway to the Stars, and I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. And, um, yeah, that was, that was, like, one of the main recordings that I fell in love with early on.
1: Would you sing a few bars, just a cappella of A Stairway to the Stars? Let's build a stairway to the stars and
2: climb that lovely stairway to the stars.
1: It would be heaven to climb to heaven with you. (laughs) Yeah, great. Um, So let's talk about your musical background, because you you were relatively new to jazz, but you are steeped in gospel music. Your grandparents and your father all sang gospel. Um, So let's start with your grandparents. Uh, Your grandmother co-founded a gospel choir in Philadelphia called the Save Etz. There's a story behind the choir. Could you tell it? Well, um, I
5: remember asking my grandfather, you know, how did the Save it get started? And he told me that my grandmother, Ruth McClendon, paternal grandmother, got together. Originally, the group between the wives, I guess, of the church was to, it was a, an effort to save money, to, to round up money together. But they started each saving meeting with a, a song. And one of her friends actually said, you know, this sounds good. We should bring our husbands in and, and maybe start a group. And so um, they had rehearsal. You know, they sang through a a couple of different things and, and the, the choir was born.
1: Did your grandmother study opera?
5: Not that I know of, actually. No.
1: Because she has a kind of operatic range.
5: I think all of, all of the studying came in church. Because I also remember a story of my grandfather, um, who was 92. I just talked to him the other day. Um, he actually got an operatic, like, I think it was a recording contract to sing opera. And, um. I think she threw it in the garbage um, because I think at that time, you know, it was church or nothing. Sacred, no secular. So they all, I think, did their thing from, from singing in church.
1: Wait, so did he or she get the contract? He did. For him to sing opera and she mm-hmm. threw it in the trash. Yeah. Huh. Did that carry over to you that they didn't want you to sing secular music?
5: Yeah, my my grandfather was definitely hesitant about it at first. Even with me going to school, you know, it's like music isn't. It doesn't belong in school. It belongs, you know, in the church. You know, I, th- I think now his, it's safe to say he's come around um, because he called me the other day. It was like, yeah, you've put the save on the Jennifer Hudson show. And you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he's uh, realizing there's more than one way to uh, to spread the gospel.
1: Right. So I'd like to play back-to-back re- recordings with your grandmother singing with the Say Vets and with your grandfather singing with the Say Vets. So let's hear that.
2: we know Lord, when he shall appear and we,
1: we So that was Ruth McClendon and Elder Goldwire McClendon singing back-to-back with their gospel choir, The Savettes. They're the grandparents of my guest, Samara Joy, who is now a double Grammy Award winner. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air Weekend.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it?
6: From your
2: car radio to your smart speaker. NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
1: Let's get back to my interview with Samara Joy, who's joining us with her band from the studio of WNYC in New York, where she's performing some songs for us. Her latest album, Linger a While, won this year's Grammy for Best Jazz Vocal Recording. This year, she also became the second jazz performer ever to win the Grammy for Best New Artist. She recorded her first album in 2020 when she was still in college. She was already used to singing in public as the lead soloist with her church choir in the Bronx. Her paternal grandparents sang gospel. Her father toured with gospel star Andre Crouch. Your grandparents had a godmobile, basically a van that drove around Philly. I I never I live in Philly, but yeah. n- I never saw never this seen I it. It was before I moved here. Um so what what was that like, do you know?
5: Well, my dad told me about it. He is like my his mom, my grandmother Ruth, um had the idea to kind of uh what's they call it, soul saving. So go out into the streets of Philadelphia and preach um and sing and um tell people about God. And so they rented a van. Or I don't think they rent. Maybe they did. They rent a van either rent or bought or, you know, a friend gave it to them um, and they wrote in big letters, Godmobile. And he and my aunts and uncles um, got in the car (laughs) and my grandmother would pick a random corner and they would set up and have church. Did a lot of people show up or,
1: or just pass by?
5: Yeah, they, they you know, there were a lot of passersby since it was like on the sidewalks normally. Um, but my dad does tell stories about um, people walking by and actually engaging and, you know, singing along and then eventually getting saved and stuff.
1: That must have been interesting just on the corner. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> just driving yeah. by like, what's that commotion over there? So did they preach as well as sing?
5: Yeah, my my grandfather and grandmother were both pastors. Um, and they had a, had a church for a while. They moved to Tennell, Georgia. Um, and and had their own church for, I want to say, 15 years, something like that, before moving back to Philadelphia later on. So, yeah, they were both pastors.
1: You sang in church during your teen years, or you were, like, the lead singer of the choir? Is that the right way of putting it?
5: Yes, I joined—so I joined a church that was actually up the street from my high school um, when I was around 15, and um, I started in the choir, and then eventually they kind of— let me sing with the. it was like a praise and worship leader. Like the, like there was a choir and then there were about eight singers that normally took the stage with actual microphones. Um, and so they let me lead a couple songs before eventually um, naming me one of the worship leaders. Um, and so I did that from the time I was, yeah, from the time I was 16 until I, until I graduated from high school.
1: Can you sing a little bit about one, one of the gospel songs that you sang in church that you felt most deeply, that most deeply moved you or connected you to, to you, know, you know, the world beyond self? I can do, okay. Blessed
2: assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Air of salvation purchase of God born of his spirit
1: washed in his blood. I wanna quote something that you said. I think this was in an interview with the BBC. You said, in church, we come to connect to something greater than ourselves. So if I'm the vessel for that, then I have to be completely free of any sort of ego or nerves. That's what I still keep with me now. I thought that that was a really beautiful thing to say. And... Um, When you sang in church, you were a teenager, like you were 15, 16. It's a very deep thought for a 15 or 16-year-old to have, to think of something greater than yourself and of you being a vessel without ego. Um, Did somebody talk to you about that? Is that an idea you came up with yourself? I mean, it's kind of a mix
5: of both. You know, it was what was taught And it was taught um, before, you know, being named a worship leader is like my role, you know, as far as um, leading people in praise and worship, but also it's just kind of what I saw, you know, around me. Um, My dad, he was was also a worship leader at the time. And, you know, when I went to him, you know, thinking like, I can't really do this. I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. It's like, well, it's not about you, (laughs) you know, and if you were chosen to to fulfill this particular role at this time you know it's for a reason and so don't think about you know having to be perfect or having to be the best singer in the room or the best you know whatever in the room but just focus on being not only yourself but focus on being open and having your ears open and your spirit open to whatever the moment calls for. I
1: can see the idea of being chosen Working in two ways. On the other hand, on the one hand, like that's a lot of pressure. Like you were chosen, <laughs> you know, so you'd better fulfill the promise. On the other hand, it takes the pressure off for the reasons you just mentioned. Um, did you feel both sides of that—the pressure and the lack of pressure?
5: I did. I did. Especially because I was I was kind of like, why me? <laughs> In a lot of ways. You know, I was just like, I don't, this is like before SUNY Purchase, before, you know, venturing into jazz, before having uh, proper vocal lessons and stuff. So um, I just felt, I felt like I was excited to do it, but I just felt kind of unprepared. Um, and so... Um, yeah, I felt the pressure. You know, it was definitely, it was, a, it was a bigger church than I guess normal. You know, it was live streamed and there was a big congregation that came in every week. Um, and people would tell me, you know, we like your singing, but you just don't blink up there. It's like, we can tell, you know, you're really nervous. Um, so I did, I felt the pressure. But again, then again, I feel like it was the perfect space to grow and develop because um, people were very loving and supportive of me at the, in that time.
1: So can you do one more song for us? I would absolutely want-
5: love to. I wish this didn't Whoa. have to end.
1: <laughs> I feel the same. <laughs> um, what, what song would you like to do?
5: Right now we'd like to do for you a, a song that has uh, opened many doors for me since I first recorded it. Um, and the way that I do it has since shifted from the first for first time I ever uh, tried my hand at it. This is Stardust.
1: This is a Hoagy Carmichael song. And what's the difference between how you did it before and how you're doing it now?
5: Well, I think about, you know, I think the state of mind that I was in when I first recorded it, I was in college, you know, hadn't had much gig experience or any time on the road. And so it was very, I wouldn't say it was very pure, my approach to it. I just wanted to sing the melody as best as I could. Um, Now I'm after a couple of years of touring and a couple um, times, (laughs) more than a couple times of me singing the song, I've. Found a place in it, you know, where I can explore and take more more liberties while still sticking close to the melody.
2: Okay. Sometimes I wonder. stars are
1: Thank you all so much. It's just been so wonderful to hear you and to talk with you. Thank you for all the pleasure you've given me and our listeners today. So thank you, Samara Joy and Cameron Campbell, who's been at the piano, Michael Migliori, bass, Evan Sherman drums. And Samara, I really wish you good luck. You have such an interesting future ahead and I, I hope you continue to follow your heart.
5: Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure talking to you, and I can't wait to meet you in person.
1: Oh, gosh, I'd love that. Samara Joy's new album is called Linger a While. Samara and her band joined us from the music studio at WNYC in New York. Our thanks to WNYC and to recording engineer Irene Trudel. The new movie, 1001, won the grand jury prize in the U.S. Dramatic Competition at this year's Sundance Film Festival. It's the first feature written and directed by A. V. Rockwell, and it follows more than a decade in the lives of a mother and son struggling to survive in a fast changing New York City. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review.
7: A thousand and one begins in nineteen ninety four, shortly before a twenty-two-year-old woman named Inez is released from Rikers Island. We don't know much about her, but Tiana Taylor, the electrifying actor who plays her, tells us plenty just from the brashly confident way Inez strides through her old Brooklyn stomping grounds after a year away. As she greets old friends and looks for work as a hairdresser, Inez is determined to put the past behind her, though that becomes impossible when she runs into her 6-year-old son, Terry, on the street. Terry was sent to foster care when Inez went to prison and while he resents her for leaving him, he'd clearly rather be with her again than in his current situation. And so when Terry has an accident at home, Inez impulsively springs him from the hospital and takes him to the Harlem neighborhood where she grew up. They lie low for a while, though it soon becomes sadly clear that nobody's really looking for Terry, who's just one of many kids who've slipped through the cracks of the foster care system. Inez grew up in that system herself, and she wants to give Terry the loving home she never had. Soon she finds them a rundown Harlem apartment. The number on the door, 1001, is one explanation for the movie's title. Over the next several years, this apartment will be their home. But it's a precarious one, where every happy moment feels both fleeting and hard-won. Inez works long hours to provide for herself and Terry, a gifted student whose teachers think he could be Ivy League material. Eventually, Inez marries Lucky, an old boyfriend, played by a charismatic William Catlett. While not the most faithful husband, Lucky becomes a genuinely loving father figure to Terry. In this scene, Lucky and Inez walk down the street, reflecting on how far they've come.
3: Yo, you remember what it's like when we were coming up? I remember.
7: <laughs> you
3: should be proud of yourself, Inez. We made it. You don't seem happy. I
5: think Terry it, speak?
3: Teenagers hate everybody, but I do sense a little void in them. First couple years of his life, he ain't had nobody. Kids still walking around here with a broken heart.
7: Terry is played at ages 6, 13, and 17 by the actors Aaron Kingsley Adetola, Avon Courtney, and Josiah Cross. The use of three actors to play a young black man at different ages has already earned the movie comparisons to Barry Jenkins' sublime 2016 drama, Moonlight. But those similarities aside, 1001 focuses more specifically on the young man's mother. Taylor, an r and performer in her first leading film role, conveys the full weight of Inez's sacrifices— by the end, the sensual, free-spirited woman we met in the opening scenes has become visibly sadder and wearier, though still possessed of the same devil-may-care defiance. If 1001 were just a story about a mother and son overcoming the odds, it would be moving enough. But the writer-director A.V. Rockwell, making a strong feature debut after years directing shorts and music videos, gives this intimate drama a sharp sociopolitical context. Even as Inez and Terry grow older, the city around them is changing, too. At the beginning, the Harlem we see pulses with grit and energy, shot in a vibrantly kinetic style and set to a 90s hip-hop beat. By the end, the neighborhood has been gentrified beyond recognition, as reflected in the movie's cooler, gloomier palette and its many shots of anonymous-looking office and residential buildings. Rockwell doesn't shy away from detailing how these shifts have impacted communities of color in general, and Inez and Terry in particular. They're gradually forced out of their apartment by a new landlord who wants to tear the building down. Terry and his friends face routine police harassment, a development that Rockwell intersperses with real news clips covering Mayor Giuliani's embrace of stop-and-frisk policies. None of this comes off as didactic. Rockwell deftly weaves her commentary into a story that turns out to be less conventional and more surprising than it looks. She also reminds us that there's more to both Inez and Terry than their tough circumstances. We see this in the playful scenes of 17-year-old Terry flirting with a girl behind a restaurant counter, or the poignant moment when Inez, rather than picking a fight with one of Lucky's girlfriends as she might have once done— instead treats her with decency and grace. Rockwell has such a sure grasp of her characters and their complexities that she's able to end the story on a boldly unresolved note. I left the movie thinking about what might lie ahead for Inez and Terry, and feeling grateful for the time I'd spent in their company.
1: Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed A 1001, Coming up, we'll hear from Brooke Shields. She's the subject of the new documentary, Pretty Baby. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
3: This message comes from Jackson. Let's face it, retirement planning can be confusing. At Jackson, we're working to make retirement clear for everyone, starting with you. Our easy-to-understand resources and user-friendly digital tools help simplify your entire experience. You can have confidence in your retirement with Clarity from Jackson. Seek the clarity you deserve at Jackson.com. Jackson is short for Jackson Financial Incorporated, Jackson National Life Insurance Company, Lansing, Michigan, and Jackson National Life Insurance Company of New York. Purchase New York. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow. Everyone's talking about AI, but where do you start? How can it actually help your business? The ServiceNow platform brings intelligence into every corner of your company. So every person, every system, every process, everything works better. Put AI to work. Go to servicenow.com genai to see how.
4: The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local,
1: national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today.
6: This is Fresh Air. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado. On the most recent Fresh Air Plus bonus episode, we looked back at the art of drag through interviews from Fresh Air's archive.
3: Atlanta was like Mecca for drag. It had the traditional drag queens who were female impersonators. But, you know, I'd come from the punk rock side of the tracks, and we did drag as a social commentary. It was a re- reaction to the Reagan 80s.
7: John wanted a very large um, woman because, as you had said before, he wanted the exact opposite of what normally would be beautiful. Uh, he wanted, to, as I've been called, inflated Jane Mansfield. <laughs> Um, uh, so, um, that's, that's what he got.
6: As anti-drag legislation sprouts throughout American state legislatures, we thought it would be worthwhile to hear icons like RuPaul, Divine, and more talk about what drag has meant to them personally.
1: You know, it's really funny. I feel like I should ask you for tips about how to walk in high heels. I've I never been you. able to wear heels. Really? It's so simple, <laughs> Not, not that I'm dying to wear them or anything, yeah, but you know, my feet ache simple. and I figure it's not worth it. So you, you want to give me some tips? Oh, I, I could run the decathlon in it. I, I, I could. You know, talk about drag racing. I mean, I could uh, really I walk better in heels, I think, than, than in flats.
6: If you're a Fresh Air Plus listener, you already get all of our episodes without sponsored messages. And now you get exclusive bonus episodes like this, too, every few weeks. Regular Fresh Air remains the same and free, but with Plus, you get even more of Fresh Air. You can sign up for Fresh Air Plus
1: and support public media at plus.npr.org. Brooke Shields is the subject of a new documentary on Hulu called Pretty Baby that has already become part of the larger conversation about the sexualization of children and young women. Her career started as a baby in soap commercials and print ads. She went on to become an actress, famous in part for her beauty. One of her most notable and controversial roles was in the 1978 movie Pretty Baby, in which, at the age of 12, she played a child prostitute. Brooke Shields talked about her life and career with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, the host of the podcast, Truth Be Told. There was a time when
4: Brooke Shields was a household name, a cultural phenomenon. Even today, depending on how old you are, Shields doesn't need much of an introduction. Most often, her starring role in the 1980s film Blue Lagoon or her Calvin Klein ads are enough.
1: You want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing.
4: But as the new documentary Pretty Baby explores, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s early career was defined by a sexuality that both she and the world are still trying to understand. In this two-part series now on Hulu, director Lena Wilson peels back the layers of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s story, examining the toxic culture and power structure that perpetuates misogyny and objectifies young girls. Brooke Shields has had a long career as a model, a Broadway, film, and television actor. She's authored several books and is the host of the podcast, Now What? Brooke Shields, welcome again to Fresh Air.
0: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
4: Brooke, you started working at 11 months old. And really, by the time you were a teenager, you were one of the most recognized children on the planet. How much awareness did you have about your fame? because i never really knew life without
0: it um it was just a part of my life being recognized it started at such a young age that you just sort of you never get really used to the feeling but you get used to surveying an area knowing when someone's going to approach you sort of get this this other sense becomes very incited and um and so it wasn't about fame as much as it was just about recognition And the minute you leave your apartment,
4: you are in the world differently than many people are. In Pretty Baby, you were portrayed as a child prostitute. But you describe it as truly the only artistic film you think you've ever been in, even to this day. Yeah, I really, I, I value
0: it so much more. I mean, every single detail in that movie was, in Pretty Baby, was purely thought out and of the actual time, the research that went into all the wardrobe and the, we had one of the best cinematographers in the world. And, you know, so the the caliber of talent on that set and, and really putting the film together I th- was just unlike anything that I've ever experienced again.
4: Of course, because of the depiction of, of a child prostitute and you being the age that you were that's what made it so controversial for in at the time in 1978 um and it also was uh, a time where you had your first on-screen kiss in the film and I heard you say that it must have been harder actually for the adult male actor Keith Carradine than it was for you at the time did you even understand the weight of, of that kiss in the moment
0: No, I just was embarrassed that I didn't know how to do it. You know, I had never kissed a boy before, you know, so it was, it was one of those things where, I mean, I'd had a crush on a little model that I would work, I had worked with. And that was it. I mean, i at 11, I didn't know what I was doing. And so you know I kept scrunching up my face, and I kept cut, like you just don 't know what to do, and it 's funny because it 's such a non kiss you know, and it was funny because Louie made it a stay together Louis Mal sort of the director yes. Louis Mal, yes, made us <laughs> I mean, just stay together and he and he kept saying don't don 't pull apart, don 't pull away don 't pull away and I was just like, Wow, really, is this all it is kissing this is Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, when you're 11 too, you don't think of age difference. Mm. So I mean, he was, I assume, much more aware um, but such a gentleman and so kind about it. You know, he didn't want to scar me. I read you
4: know, he, that he said to he, you, this doesn't count.
0: Yeah. And it really I thought it did. You know, you, re- you think so much about the first kiss you know, which you're going to have and you talk about it with your girlfriends and You know, it was funny. We would have those like parties where whenever I went to go visit my sisters, they would, you know, five seconds in the closet or 10 seconds in the closet. And every time I got in the closet, I went, don't even think about it. Don't even think about kissing me. Don't even think about it. I am certainly not going to have my first kiss in a closet in the dark while other people are waiting outside. I was like, the whole thing is just ridiculous and childish. And I filmed, I mean, I, thought that way even when I was a kid like even younger so that's what I I didn't want to ruin that and he sensed that and you know had intuited that I had not had not kissed a boy before you know and so he knew that that's what I was struggling with and how he figured that out I don't know and it was the one of the most generous gestures any any actor has ever shown me Mm. and so kind and so in the moment and so sensitive that I never forgot it. And I've always been so thankful to him for that.
4: Hmm. You didn't feel exploited or unsafe on, on that set of Pretty Baby, but there were instances in other films where you were coaxed in ways that, that kind of made you feel uncomfortable. There was this weird moment on the set of the 1981 movie, Endless Love, where the director, uh, Franco Zeffirelli was was pinching your toes in order to get you to get a certain
2: reaction out of you
0: some look of ecstasy or something on my face and you know my first reaction was how about directing here's an idea
4: you were thinking that even in the time
0: yeah why won't you tell me like why I had somebody once say they had a coach on the set and I was I think I was doing just you and me kid or something with George Burns. And, and he, the, the person said to me, okay, now you have to cry. So you have a horse, right? And I said, yes. And she said, so think about someone stabbing your horse. And I said, lady, look, if someone stabbed my horse, I, I would, the first thing I would do would not be cry. I would, I, I would not cry. I would stab the person who stabbed my horse. And then I would fix the horse (laughs) and then maybe I would cry. I said, that is the worst thing because I would have an instant look of anger and rage. And I don't think anger and rage is what the director is looking for. I think he's looking for sad. (laughs) And I just thought, God, can't people come up with something a little more relatable and a bit more nuanced, you know, to talk you through something and give you an image rather than an image that's going to possibly produce the antithesis of what is needed. I mean, I'm a very thoughtful kid who has a very good imagination, who is very emotive and you could have come up with just a little bit. You should have spent a little more time with me taking me aside and and sort of guiding me through it, you know, the the boys in the those films were always so much more of a focal point because they were considered newcomers, you know, and they were both older. Um, like your male all co-stars, my leading men were yeah. old, older. Yeah, you know, my male co-stars were always older, and you know they should have been spending more time. You know, I know that in Louis Mal's case, there was this. He didn't want me schooled. He didn't want me thinking of things. He really did just want to see me react in situations and so that was very different It was a very different film but when it actually came to sort of practicality uh, directors weren't didn't spend any time with me you know so I just they you know the assumption is I look a certain way so that's enough and I'm box office so that's enough
4: yeah how do you reconcile that? Are are you angry about it today? Because just knowing what I know about you, you, you take your craft seriously. Do you think you would have gotten a better performance? They would have gotten a better performance out of you.
0: I think they would have gotten a better performance. I think there's a sort of thinness to a lot of my earlier, not Pretty Baby. I don't know how Louis Malle ended up to, but he would talk. He would talk in stories and he would just say stories and he would get you to think of things, but he didn't he, you know, it was very, very different, you know, I don't, I I don't, it's not anger. It's just sort of missed opportunity feels feelings. You know, I think, I think a lot of the movies I made could have been better, but then again, you know, I also have to say, but it didn't matter because I wanted to be liked more than I was worried about really delivering a master performance. Plus I wanted to really ensure that There was no crossover into my own life. So I made faces and I had, like the minute the scene would be over, I would stick my tongue out or I would just to constantly break character because I didn't want to, I wanted to remain my personal self at the same time. And, you know, that was a form of self-protection and preservation.
4: That is really interesting, the two things you said there. One is you want it to be liked. I think that's something that a lot of women and young girls can understand you go along with things because you want to be liked absolutely but it also sounds like you had a sense of yourself a really strong sense of yourself as a a young child wanting to make certain that you kept those parts of yourself that weren't, weren't a part of show business where did that come from you know I
0: think any there was a lot of uncertainty and the unexpected in the way my mother and I lived our life you know you at the drop of a hat, you were at a different location or, you know, she would be sober one minute, drunk the next. And so there was this sort of, there was always a um, a sense of what's, what's going to happen next. And I think that going on to a movie set, the structure of it and the mechanics of it were so comforting to me because they were so predictable and you could learn them and you, you had a routine and you had, a call sheet, and you had rules, and you had lunch time, and you had all of these different things that I just loved. And I think that losing myself in a character was scary to me because I was afraid I wouldn't have any ground to go back to. So I kept disassociating from from all of it. You know, I just compartmentalized, and you know, I just and I think that was just my way of keeping steady. Mm. I don't know how I knew that. I think it was instinctual and I also think it has a lot to do with being a child of an alcoholic. You know, you get very very controlling in what you can control because there's so much you can't control. And as a child, you know, you need to keep your loved one alive. And so it takes such precedence over everything that I, you know, I became like a neat freak and kind of OCD and really organized and I kept my environment very controlled you know
4: I really am struck by this um, mechanism you use to protect yourself to disassociate I actually feel like I I noticed it in some of those early interviews when these male journalists would be asking you really borderline or suggestive questions you seemed aloof almost unfazed I want to play a clip of you being interviewed around the time of of pretty baby let's take a listen
7: how do you feel about all this fuss that's being made over you?
4: I think it's kind of fun. <laughs> do
7: you? Yeah. Honey. You're enjoying it.
4: Oh, yeah,
6: I love it.
1: You really are an exquisite-looking young lady. I know you've been told that, but isn't she a pretty, pretty girl?
4: That was the interviewer, Mike Douglas, interviewing you back in the 1970s. And it feels so uncomfortable to listen to this. What goes through your mind when you look back at these kinds of interactions? after Pretty Baby, there
0: was such a, um, a firestorm, you know, it was as if, because I was away in Europe, um, was the film won the Palme d'Or in Cannes. And when we came back to America, you know, Cannes, everything in, in France was celebrating us. And then we come back to America and it's just pitchforks and protests and,
6: And and they
0: were just, there was so much that I just shut down to all of it. And, you know, you just sit there in these interviews and you're just like, oh, here we go again. They're going to just, they're going to say the same thing, ask the same question. I always used to say, God, I wonder, Mom, if I were to play a murderer, would would they, you know, would they be really worried that I was uncomfortable Hmm. stabbing somebody and, you know, killing somebody and the blood and, you know, it's just... You know, I was more traumatized by my first movie where I was nine and I had to get this uh, prosthetic makeup on my face to look like I had been burned. It was a murder mystery. And um, I hadn't seen the makeup and then I looked in the mirror and I looked like, you know, I had big slice of pizza on my face and I thought it was going to be like charcoal, like, you know, a chimney sweep because I'd seen Mary Poppins, you know, and all of a sudden I had this, I was terrified. I looked in the mirror and it's so interesting to me that, you know, people never had a problem with me playing that character or Mm -hmm. they never, and I understand because sexuality is just such a trigger for, for especially the press, but it always
4: struck me as ignorant. The funny thing is, um, Watching the documentary and seeing these clips, um, one might think, oh, well, this is in the rearview mirror, the way that um, interviewers interview children. But then I recently saw a video where someone stitched together a series of interviews that reporters had done with Justin Bieber when he was a child. And some of the questions were so suggestive and inappropriate. And this was just a few years ago by comparison. Why do you think there is such a need to... Maybe it's not sexualized, but adultify, if that's even a word. Child stars. Um, you dealt with it. We see this so much with young stars, especially if they're considered like, um, you know, showboats or or um, the object of desire for young girls or boys.
0: You know, asking Britney Spears if she's a virgin, you know, you look at that, that wasn't that long ago either. So I don't think we've really come very far, to be honest. I don't... I. You know, I I think that we think because we're we're able to speak out more that the situation is changing, and I don't really see that much of a change. Um, And there, most of the time, you know, mostly men. But there are so many interviews where I was interviewed by women who, at one point, I was God, I must have been thirteen, and this woman kept asking the same question over and over, just with different words and i finally said excuse me ma'am i said but i don't think you want my answer mm. and she went oh what what i said i just i keep answering it and i keep trying to tell you that it's my truth but you keep asking the question so i think you want a different answer but i can't give you a different answer cuz that's not i would be lying it's not my truth and i thought how the hell did i know enough or have the balls to say it I to know. this woman You know, I mean, Barbara Walters on air asked me to stand up to compare our figures because she asked me what my measurements were. As if I knew my waist in inches or centimeters. You know, I was 15. That's And these are women and purportedly mothers. And, And you just think, God, do you think you have to do that to be valid? That's pretty... Depraved, if you ask me.
4: <laughs> Brooke Shields, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Brooke
1: Shields is the subject of the new documentary Pretty Baby that's now streaming on Hulu. She spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shurok, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor NetSuite by Oracle. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. 1. Because your unique business deserves a customized solution. And that's NetSuite. Learn more at netsuite.com story.
7: Here and Now Anytime is a news podcast from NPR and WBUR that zigs when others zag. You've already heard the headlines, so go deeper on the stories that affect you with people who know what's up. Explore your world, learn something new, and make the news make sense with Here and Now Anytime. Available wherever you get your podcasts.